one and only Cliff Richard and the Shadow. Hi. This is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to episode 29 of the We Say Yeah podcast, a monthly, unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in mostly chronological order. By the time you are listening to this episode, published in mid-November 2023, I will have returned... God willing, from my first ever trip to the UK and my first ever Cliff concert. Meaning that what you're listening to right now, I must confess, is a podcast recorded several months before I left for that trip. In fact, this episode was recorded before last month's episode, which should have been the show with Erica White. It's very confusing. Anyway, the reason I banked a couple of shows in advance is because all of the chaos surrounding the passport and getting ready for my upcoming journey, I wanted no distractions. With that said, if you're interested in finding out what happens on my London sojourn, this will all be revealed on our next episode, which should be our annual holiday episode with Mark Cunningham. Anyway, that means we'll also get to any and all reviews, comments, mail, tweets on our next episode. So, in the meantime, I have a question for you. Can you think of any songs that directly mention Cliff Richard and or The Shadows? I ask this because it stands to reason that since Cliff and The Shadows were such a big phenomenon, there had to have been some novelty songs that mentioned them in the lyrics. So far, I've found two. One is called 1960s They Call Him Cliff by Don Lang and his Frantic Five. I know a boy who can really move it. I know a guy who is dynamite. He's got a living doll around every corner. But he keeps on traveling like they call him Cliff. Every time he takes a microphone in his hand Oh, well, oh, well, oh, well, he shakes a hip Moves a fingertip and they scream And they shout And they know just what it's all about And the other one is called I'll Give It Five by Janice Nichols from 1963 where she mentions both Cliff and The Shadows I'll give it five Billy Cube is tremendous And Cliff's for me Are there any others you can think of? Well, just let me know at we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. That's the email address, we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. And on our Facebook page, which is also called We Say Yeah, and on X Twitter at We Say Yeah Pod. All right, on to this month's episode. Journalist Pat Murphy joins us once again to discuss two singles from The Shadows, one single from Cliff, and two EPs that are similar in how they were constructed by EMI. We'll talk about Shindig with The Shadows and Cliff Sings Don't Talk to Him. Both of these feature A and B sides of a recent single, and then EMI fills out the rest of the EP with songs seemingly chosen at random. Why and how did this happen? Well, we start off talking about Cliff Sings Don't Talk to Him, released in March of 1964. 
which features both sides of the Don't Talk to Him single, and then three songs stretching all the way back to 1962's 32 Minutes and 17 Seconds album. They issued an awful lot, I don't mean awful, a lot, of uh, Cliff EPs. It was like EMI were determined to squeeze every, every last uh, <laughs> bit of business value out of them. And uh, they had a uh, Don't Talk to Him single, which hadn't been on an EP, so they, uh, they uh, reached back to the last album that hadn't been fully extracted for EPs. And uh, they, I guess, threw in an extra track as a salve, I guess you could call it. <laughs> so make it five instead of four. So we've already talked about certainly all of these songs uh, earlier in their original context on the program. But just to get your feel for, I'll, I'll tell you up front, Don't Talk to Him is one of my favorites. Early Cliff and the Shads singles written by Bruce and Cliff. What do you think of Don't Talk to Him? <laughs> Some guy tells you I don't care and tells you lies while I'm not there, don't talk to him. And if he tells you I'm untrue, then darling, here's what you must do, don't talk to him. And if he tells you I've been seen walking around with Sue and Jean, he's lying again. Lying oh, I, I am also very fond of, uh, of Don't Talk to Him. It was, um, as you know, it was actually written in Blackpool during the summer of 1963 and uh, during the long 16-week summer season uh, that Cliff did and uh, called Holiday Carnival. Now, uh, it was recorded, if uh, my memory serves, mid-October 63 when Cliff was just on the shadows. We're just back from a, a tour of uh, Israel. And uh, it was a very interesting time because many of the... the uh, previously popular artists were actually struggling and the the rise of the Beatles and uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Searchers and Freddie and the Dreamers and all of those the music world had, had most definitely changed and there was an interesting uh, article uh, around the time of uh, Don't Talk to Him's single release. It was in the Melody Maker which was one of the, the two most prestigious music papers and the big headline on it was dangerous days for cliff <laughs> and it was actually a very good article uh, the theme of it was that uh, you know notwithstanding his um, and by then it was five years of uh, of straight dominance that um, the world around him was changing and he might not survive who knew and it made it very interesting because um, when Don't Talk to Him was released, you actually watched the charts very carefully. Now, I remember the first public performance of Don't Talk to Him. It was uh, one of the numbers done on Sunday night at the London Palladium on the 3rd of November, 1963, just two days after the uh, record was uh, released. And the dominant chart of the day, I mean, the, the, it's not the one that is retrospectively cast as the official chart, but right. the, the chart that everybody paid attention to most was uh, the NMEs. So it was it was really interesting to watch how it did. Uh, first week it 
it debuted at 15. Cliff normally debuted either in the top 10 or actually in the top 10. But uh, it was uh, 15, so, you know, hmm, what was going to happen after that? Right. Next week it was five, next week it was three, next week it was two. So um, the first bout of Dangerous Days had been, uh, had been survived. I did think at the time that they were very cognizant of what was happening around them. Like there was no attempt to copy uh, the various Mersey beat groups or anything like that. But I think that it had a, a somewhat harder sound yes. than it would have had had they done it six months earlier. I liked it. I liked it a lot. I still do. And um, it was very successful, not just in, in the UK. It was a top ten in a whole raft of other markets. It was number one in Ireland. It's a wonderful song. And when you flip that record over, you get another wonderful song. I'm talking about the original single, yeah. Say You're Mine, written by Tony Meehan, along with Norman Stracy. So Tony Meehan's long out of the shadows at this point, and yet yeah. he's contributing somehow. Well, I, I guess uh, Cliff was uh, a guy that, uh, if you were a writer, that uh, you always wanted to get a song to. Certainly of the British um, market, he was still, by all means, the hottest male singer, uh, or the hottest solo singer, period. And uh, Tony would still have had uh, connections, however attenuated they had become, to the uh, the, the cliff operation so I guess that's how the song was placed and it was recorded not in London but it was recorded in Blackpool in early August 63 during that same holiday carnival run um, Nari Paramore brought uh, the mobile recording unit up to Blackpool and did a series of, uh, of numbers uh, with Cliff and the Shadows and uh, with the Shadows on their own and Say Your Mind was one of them. It was a, a song that I, that I again, I'd really liked then and, and, and still do. It, um, it had a, I, there was this tour, it had this great bass guitar intro, and the, yes. the, the kind of underlying figure that runs through the whole number, and the um, slow, bluesy feel. Uh, I think it was um, in the NME's review of the single, the... Um, reviewer, I can't remember who it was now, but the reviewer made a particular reference to uh, Say Your Mind and said he would like to hear some more material from Cliff in that, in that vein. What are your thoughts on, we'll just briefly touch on the three tracks from 32 minutes and 17 seconds. We've got Spanish Harlem, Who Are We to Say, and Falling in Love with Love, which seem incongruous compared to the other two. Rum. Rose up 
Why the sun must shine, why the raindrops fall, and why your heart is mine. Tell me, darling. Falling in love with love is falling for make-believe. Falling in love with love is playing the fool. Caring too much is such a juvenile fancy. Learning to trust is just for children in school. Yeah, I wasn't. Uh, well, thirty-two minutes was a good album, but I really. The the orchestral pieces uh, kind of let it down. Now I, there are maybe three exceptions to that. I liked I wake up crying. I liked uh, turn around, and um, I liked um, oh one other one that I can't uh, that uh, okay. escapes me right now. Uh, oh, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I oh like yeah. That. By the way. Um, Roy Bennett told me once, um, well, told me, we had at one point some email correspondence, that uh, of all the songs that Cliff, um, the Tepper Bennett songs that Cliff had recorded, he liked I'm On My Way the best. Yeah. By the way, I will say one thing about Spanish Harlem. Uh, I mean, Cliff does a good version of it, and uh, it was part of his stage act in uh, early 1963. But um, his version always sounded a little too earnest for me uh you know like he was trying too hard yeah whereas um i liked even though i couldn't understand the orders i liked the sound of the german language version uh, that he cut a couple of years later better it still caught the mood of the song but it but it had a a lighter ambiance uh, to it and it was a huge hit of course it was the number one in germany austria and switzerland in 64 65 das ist die Frage aller Fragen Und du musst mir die Antwort sagen Und darum frage ich when I talk about a song like this that had been a big, huge hit in America by Ben E. King, I always get a response from someone in one of those countries who says, we didn't know about the other version. You know, the version that we knew was Cliff's version. Absolutely. Well, by and large, uh, most of the, the, I mean, some Anglo-American artists, well, actually, Cliff was the only Anglo one, uh, and uh some American ones like uh, Elvis, Connie Francis, uh, and our fellow Canadian here, Paul Anka, did actually have uh, hits in Germany. But by and large, I mean, with, with, with those exceptions, uh, generally speaking, Germans listened to songs in German, bought songs in German, often by German artists, or predominantly by German artists. We'll move on to... An Italian song, which became the next single for Cliff, released in November, November 17th, 1960. I'm sorry, recorded, was recorded yeah. November 17th, 1963. The single was released April 24th, 1964, and it went to number four. I'm talking about the song Constantly, I believe 
Ladera is how you pronounce the original title. Yeah. And it was written by, hold on to your hats, folks, Severio Serracini, Vincenzo Di Acquisito, I hope, and Michael Julian. I know with that last name, that's the English lyric there. Um, he was a London dentist who had the sideline in writing songs, well, writing he, English lyrics to songs. He hit the jackpot with this one. It's a fantastic ballad. Cliff's impassioned vocal really single-handedly turns this into a classic. I mean, I like the backing, too, but he's on a whole nother level here. All day I'm walking in a dream I think about you constantly Just like an ever-flowing stream your memory haunts me constantly Shadows fall and I try To drive you from my mind So you're no longer near to me I would characterize it as one of his best and indeed his most durable uh, early ballads. That, by the way, the, the session in which you recorded it that you mentioned, November 1763, I was, I was a Sunday uh, and uh, it was in the midst of the um, pre-filming rehearsal for Wonderful Life. So uh, he was a busy fella, you know, uh, rehearsed the, for the movie uh, Monday through Saturday, uh, go into the studio to do something else entirely different on Sunday. And um, it was a, a very productive session with three songs at it. There was Constantly, which was the big hit. And then uh, there was uh, I Only Know I Love You, which was uh, also a song... Both, apparently, both constantly and I only know I love you were suggested uh, to Nori Paramore by EMI Italy. Uh, the third song at the session was a song that I actually like a lot. To uh, it didn't appear until well, it didn't appear in the UK until uh, an album track a couple of years later. Although it was released in North America on the It's All in the Game album in '64. Uh, it's called I Only Came to Say Goodbye, and it's um, uh, it's a song I'm, I'm, I'm fond of. I only came to say goodbye Because I hope to make you stay Is it any wonder that I try To stop you from going away but anyway, I'm the Lonely One had been the um, the single in between Don't Talk to Him and Constantly. And I'm the Lonely One had actually disappointed. Now, it was a top ten hit, but it broke a multi-year top five streak. And of course, again, in the changing and very volatile uh, musical environment of the time, it kind of raised that, are these dangerous days for Cliff right. uh, question. And it was so... Very interesting also to watch how it showed in the enemy chart constantly. Debuted at uh, 22. Uh, again, lower than Don't Talk to Him, and for that matter, lower than I'm the Lonely One. But then it went slowly up, 15, 9, 5, 5, 5. Didn't get to 4 in the enemy, but it was a top 5 hit, and it was a very solid top 5 hit. So the dangerous days were still being kind of held at at bay. It did very well uh, on, in other markets too, and 
by my my count, which is not necessarily exhaustive, uh, had it in the top ten in at least eleven other markets. Number one in the Netherlands, uh, uh, Malaysia, South Africa. It's one of Cliff's very best early ballads. A flame that burns so bright, not only through the night, but constantly. When I flip this record over, now I'm really enjoying this single. I love True True Lovin', written by Bruce Welch. It's one of my all-time favorites, actually, by Cliff in the Shadows. At this time, I I think the B-side material is rivaling the A-side material. Harry, well here's some information that I'd like you to carry No matter what you say, no matter what you do Here's my loving and it's just for you now You know in Hong Kong, uh, True True Lovin' was flipped as the A-side But um, yeah, I I had the um, good fortune oh, some number of years ago now, to actually interview Bruce Welsh in, in person. And uh, I kind of mentioned True True Lovin' to him, and it was clear to me that he knew it was his song, but it was clear to me that he hadn't listened to it for a very long time. Because <laughs> um, in addition to it being a, a... I mean, it's a real fun rocker, but the um, there's some language in it that... Um, yes. Uh, I guess you'd call it a regional colloquialism, that is, that really catches your ear. Like there's one couplet that says something like, "A flower can't live without a drop of water," and then that say different. Well, they really shouldn't order. Yes. And I, I quoted that to uh, to Bruce, and he kind of said, "Oh, I'll have to pull that when I go get home to England. I'll have to pull that out and listen to it again." My love for you just grows and grows My friends say quit But everybody knows that a flower can't live without a drop of water And they that say different, well they really shouldn't order now It's a great rocking song, Nori Paramore, I, I believe, on piano on that Yeah, it's it's remarkable That was recorded March 26th, 1964 we're, we'll yep. talk about the other B-side. I only know I love you, and I say the other B-side because this was recorded, as you mentioned, at the same session as Constantly, but it was released as a B-side only in Italy and Belgium. They tell me that I'm not your one and only I wouldn't know, I only know I love you They tell me you may leave me sad and lonely It may be so, I only know I love you 
This was written by Carlo Alberto Rossi, Ugo Calice, and English lyrics by Al Stillman. I'm not particularly crazy about this song. I listened to other versions as well by the Four Aces. The one I liked actually was Johnny Desmond's version of it. Suspirar amore, piano piano, parole dolce, pena namorada. Which I thought was pretty understated, but uh, you like "I Only Know I Love You." I do. I mean, uh, it um, it's probably from that session of the three songs recorded at that session. It's uh, it's probably the weakest, but I like it. Uh, I first heard it because it wasn't uh, released uh, at the time in the UK. I first heard it when I came to Canada in 65, and I bought a copy of the North America-only album, It's All in the Game, that had been released, and I think it was May 64 or something like that, in the the US and Canada. And uh, I Only Know I Love You was included in that. It was interesting because it had it included... Uh, Three, at least three songs that uh, had had not been released at the time in the UK. Uh, I only know I love you. Uh, I only came to say goodbye, and um, where the four winds blow. When you were on, I believe the first time we talked a little bit about Cliff's early success in Canada. What were Cliff's fortunes like in 1965 when the "It's All in the Game" album came out? Uh, in Canada, yeah. Uh, the bloom had sort of gone off the rose uh, at that stage. The big uh, year for Cliff in Canada was 1963. Uh, that, now, that's prior to the um, late 70s phase. When I came to Toronto, he was no longer regularly uh, on the radio. And uh, whereas um, in 63, he had been the number one top 40 radio artist in, in Toronto, and indeed in a number of other Canadian markets. We'll move on to The Shadows, who have a big single released in November of 1963. I mean, all things considered, it went to number 11, which is still pretty good, especially with the onslaught of the Beatles and Mersey Beat and everything, which was in full swing at this point, November 63. <laughs> but we have Geronimo, which was written by Hank Marvin. This was recorded December 13th, 62. I, I feel like we're back on familiar Wild West territory for the Shadows. And, you know, yeah. I, I like the ethereal backing vocals, uh, the very punchy horns, which kind of remind me of the Lost Shadows EP. I wonder if all of that was overdubbed much later. The uh, orchestral arrangement by Nari Parma was uh, uh, overdubbed. That was what was usually uh, done. The Shadows would do a basic track. It was what was done with Wonderful Land, what was done with Atlantis, and um, 
Nari Paramore would sit back and uh, listen to what was done and then think about how we could improve it. Around the time, by the way, in fact, at the very same day that I had that interview with Bruce Walsh a number of years ago, I interviewed Brian Locking, and uh, he hmm. was very fulsome in his praise of uh, Nari Paramore. He said, you know, Nari Paramore could listen to what the shadows had actually done, and he could imagine the embellishments that he could add to it, which uh, made it... Um, um, much better than it was otherwise. I remember all you know, year, back in 62, 63, uh, Hank was uh, interviewed by by the enemy, I guess, and uh, he uh, was asked a question about, uh, you know, some people complain about the strings being used now on things like uh, Wonderful Land and Guitar Tango and Atlantis and... and uh, Hank simply said, you know, if you listen to the track without the added orchestral backing, it sounds very thin. <laughs> but um, the unfortunate thing about Geronimo was that um, it was the first Shadow single since Apache to actually miss the top ten. And um, it would have been a much bigger hit if it had been released six or nine months earlier. But um, they were kind of increasingly on, uh, on the back foot, I guess. They still, they still had a big following and, and whatever, but I guess for, a, um, instru for instrumental groups, the, uh, the, the, the Beatles and all of those, the rise of them kind of pushed instrumental groups to the, uh, the side. And whereas uh, instrumentals were, in, were very big in Britain in 1960, 61, 62, uh, after the, the rise of the Mersey boom, uh, instrumentals tended to become kind of passe, be seen as kind of passe. Do you think the Shadows would have had maybe a little more success if they had flipped the B-side and made it the A, Shazam? And I say that because they had already performed it live. In fact, we talked about one of the performances on the South African EP, Live at the Coliseum. It was a familiar song because Dwayne Eddy had recorded it. It's Dwayne Eddy and Lee Hazelwood. Do you think that might have fared better? Actually, before I heard their version of Shazam, because I, I bought the single, before that, I, when I saw the announcement that this would be their new single with Shazam as the B-side, I was very pleased because I thought, oh yeah, Shazam, that'll actually fit the um, current beat market. Right. Uh, but uh, And I thought actually, you know, gee, they should surely make that the A-side. But then after I bought the single and, and listened to it, I, I was disappointed with Shazam. It just lacked the impact of Dwayne Eddy's 1961.
I mean, it's it's technically fine and all that, and it's it's not unpleasant, but it just didn't have the the impact that uh, I was hoping for. So let's talk about this EP. I mentioned that it was similar to Cliff's because it's cut from the same cloth. We have a recent Shadows single. I'm talking about the EP Shindig with the Shadows, released December 1963. And then another sampling of songs of a much older variety, Sleepwalk and theme from a filleted or filleted place on here. Yeah, Shindig uh, itself, the, 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 the track, I thought I mean it's a pleasant track it's a it's a it's a pacey track it's uh it's nice but i i found it back in the, back in the day i found it somehow lacking it was like the shadows were becoming predictable Shadows were always, in a sense, predictable because they had a very distinctive sound, and and uh, you, if they were doing a slow number, you had a uh, a sense of where it was going to go, and if they were doing an up tempo number, you had a sense of where it was going to go. But I found Shindig, you had, had kind of too much of a sense of where it was going to go, and it. Well, I guess the market kind of thought the same thing, too, because uh, it was a hit, a top ten hit, but it was the f- number six. But it was the first top five miss since The Savage in late 1961. So um, I, I think it was the first time that the writing began to go on the wall, that the the shadows, in terms of certainly in terms of the singles market, were going to go into relative, and I stress the word relative, decline. Uh, by the way, I see uh, some shadows, aficionados, uh, describing it, Shindig, as fairly heavy in, in its overall sound. didn't strike me that way at all. You know, we talked about the flip side on this show, and I love the flip, actually, <laughs> more. It's been a blue day, Brian Bennett's song. It's obviously not A-side material, but it's, I think it's a wonderful piece of music. We might as well talk about Sleepwalk and theme from a filleted place. Again, older tracks used to flesh out an EP. Sleepwalk, uh, well, I remembered, of course, the Santo and Johnny original from 1959, which I, I liked. Uh, in fact, Santo and Johnny's, I think, went to number one in the U.S., if I, if I remember correctly. And it was popular in Britain, although not, not uh, anything like uh, number one. But the Shadows did it early, and they did it in the Santo and Johnny style. Uh, and uh, 
I think the first recording of it was actually in that South African live EP that you referred to, the Coliseum mm. one. Yes. And it was a, p- a very popular stage number in the early days. And in fact, it remained a popular number in their um, 2004-2005 final tour, as they called it. Uh, they included Sleepwalk. Also, I believe, inspired Midnight, which is the yes. song that they that I think Hank wrote it, uh, that they did uh, for the uh, flip side of uh, FBI. But it, it's a nice number. It it doesn't add anything to the Santo and Johnny version, but it doesn't take anything away from it either. It's done in the same style and and done done very nicely. The other one. Uh, old track that was uh, kind of shoehorned onto that EP um, theme from a filleted place was um, I think a Hank Bruce and Jet composition but uh, it's uh, actually it's, it's a track I really like uh, in fact I uh, I listened to the the first album uh, again this afternoon because I hadn't played, to, played it for a while and it's certainly a very kind of jaunty number. It could easily have been a single in 1961, easily. And when I say a single, I mean a single A-side. So let's talk about our last single. It's very different, actually, from the previous tracks we were talking about. It's Theme for Young Lovers, backed by This Hammer. Now, this was released in March of 1964, I guess as a taster for the upcoming film, maybe? Theme for Young Lovers was written by Bruce and recorded November 1st, 1963. I really love this. I I think it's a very classy-sounding melody. I don't know if this is what the public was looking for in March of 64, though. Changed his mind, 
But um, at the session, Hank uh, stepped in on acoustic rhythm guitar. That would have been done as a, as a overdub as well. But um, it was the first single released from Wonderful Life, although the filming wasn't uh, yet completed by that time. By the time it was released, the filming had still another couple of weeks to go. And it's on the Wonderful Life soundtrack album, but uh, the shadows don't play it in the movie. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> you only hear snatches of it in the movie, um, played by uh, an orchestra, I guess, the, uh, the ABS orchestra. Anyway, the Shadows did uh, launch it. They, they had a, a gig on Sunday night at the London Palladium, top of the bill, without uh, without Cliff. Um, they did that, uh, I think it was the Sunday after it was, uh, as you said, it was released on the 28th of February, so it would have been the following Sunday that they, they were on Sunday night at the London Palladium. And it was a piece that uh, I really liked then, I still do. In fact, if I were constructing a list of my 10 favorite Shadows tracks, um, Theme for Young Lovers would most definitely be in there. It was, of course, very much in the wonderful land Atlantis style. didn't have quite the same audio impact, perhaps because uh, it was the third in that style. For that reason, it fell a little short of the top 10, uh, depending on which chart you're, you're you're looking at it was either I think a 12 or a 14 or or whatever and there was interestingly and and uh, I actually heard this from Bruce in that interview that uh, there was a Marlene Dietrich vocal version in oh, German yes <laughs> yes Werde dich lieben, werd dich lieben bis zum Tod, werd dich lieben bis ans Ende der Welt. The tune, Theme for Young Lovers, mm. remains one of my very favorite uh, Shadows tracks. Uh, if, you, if I had to pick one out of the three, Wonderful Land, Atlantis, or Theme for Young Lovers, well, first of all, I like all three. Uh, but if you force me to pick one of the three, I'd pick Theme for Young Lovers. High praise indeed. So we'll flip this record over, and we have something very unusual. It's again a return to vocals for The Shadows. It's This Hammer, which is a traditional song made famous by Lead Belly. Take this hammer and carry to the canyon. Take this hammer and carry to the captain. Take this hammer and carry to the captain. Tell him I'm gone. You tell him I'm gone. You know, I give the Shadows credit for putting a rock beat to a folk song a year before the Birds and Simon and Garfunkel were doing it, but. Um, it's interesting, is what I can say for it.
Interesting is uh, is a nice way to describe it. The, uh, I, by the way, I very much doubt that the shadows heard Lead Belly's uh, version. True. Uh, I mean, if you were living in in the UK, um, I have no idea where you'd have heard Lead Belly's version because the radio uh, options available to you in the UK were basically the BBC and, and Radio Luxembourg. This was even before the pirate radio stations. Now, uh, some people listen to uh, the American Forces Network, AFN, but uh, that was kind of hard to, hard to tune in. I would think, be my guess, I do not know, just my guess, that the shadows, the version the shadows heard of this hammer was Lonnie Donegan's. Take this hammer, take it to my captain. Take this hammer. Because he did it on an album, um, I think it was 1959, and the Shadows were very big Lonnie Donegan fans. In fact, he was one of the uh, one of their early influences in the, uh, the skiffle group that Hank and Bruce first um, first were part of. As for the, the song itself, the version itself, I'd say it's, it's, it's good fun. I also, by the way, uh, played that this afternoon because, um, again, I hadn't heard it for a long time. And uh, it's a very nice, I call it a resonant guitar in it. And it's uh, it's good fun. It's good fun. Uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it would never have been a successful A-side, though. That's true. Well, we've done it. We've covered all of these songs, and I know that the Beat magazine is more or less online these days, but you're still contributing to it, correct? Yeah, I still, I'm still there every month. Uh, the um, the uh, September one should have, which should be, I haven't seen it yet, but it should be available very soon, has a uh, piece um, which is... Um, Titled "The Real Story About American Domination in Pre-Beatles Britain," that's a bit of a, a bit. Uh, that, that, that's a bit of a be in my bonnet, as they would have said. You know, most of the things uh, are certainly many of the things you will read these days say that you know Britain was dominated by American uh, artists and American music um, uh, prior to the Beatles, and only the Beatles changed that. And any British records that were um, uh, hits uh, were really copies of uh, American records, and that's actually not true. Um, so what I have I'd done in the in the article was uh, I looked at the three years prior to the Beatles, immediately prior, 1960, 61, and 62, and I looked at the uh, at the, the number ones in the UK, and there were more British artists number ones than American artists number ones. I looked at the writers. There were lots of, uh, there, certainly there were lots of, I mean, lots of American songs were popular, but there were lots of popular British writers. Uh, you had the likes of uh, Jerry Lorden, uh, Jeff Goddard, uh, a whole bunch of, uh, of other ones. I looked at genres. Um, there was um, a genre that was very popular in, in Britain in 61, 62, 
that had no American equivalent at all. It was what it was what was called the trad boom, which was sort of British versions of uh, traditional New Orleans style jazz. Yes. But at the, there was no uh, contemporaneous um, presence of, of of that genre in the uh, American charts. Uh, there was also a whole series, if you look at uh, American chart toppers from that period, that Britain either entirely snubbed or, or mostly snubbed. I mean, the, the, the American records were good records, but for some reason, but they just because they were American number ones didn't mean they necessarily got any purchase in Britain. The uh, I, I'm thinking of things like Alley Oop, great record, right. uh, Duke of Earl. Uh, those things meant little or nothing in Britain at the time. So that uh, will be my uh, September piece, and I've just finished writing what I presume will be the October piece, and it's a cliff piece. Uh, it's taking a look at the the 1960 singles that didn't make the top ten. There were uh, 42 singles uh, he released in the UK uh, in the 1960s, 33 of them made the top 10, nine of them didn't. So I'm still uh, working away at the beat. My thanks once again to Pat Murphy for appearing on the show. Don't forget, next month will be our holiday show, our Christmas show with Mark Cunningham, and that's when I will give you the lowdown about the concerts. In fact, Mark will too, because I know Mark is going to a concert. And we'll talk about uh, the Cliff with Strings album and the book, A Head Full of Music, all sorts of stuff. That'll be the year-end wrap-up show next month. Thanks so much for listening to this month's episode. I hope I had a great time in London, and I hope I saw all of you. If not, I guess I'll do it in uh, a couple of years or so when I return. Anyway, I will return in podcast form anyway next month. Until then, take care. We say yeah. We say yeah.